You're listening to Isaiah, a sermon series from Coram Deo Church in Omaha, Nebraska. For more resources, visit cdomaha.com. This morning's reading is Isaiah chapters 38 and 39. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amoz, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die, you shall not recover. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord and said, Please, O Lord, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept. Bitterly. Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria and will defend this city. This shall be the sign to you from the Lord that the Lord will do this thing. That he has promised. Behold, I will make the shadow cast by the declining sun on the dial of Ahaz turn back ten steps. So the sun turned back on the dial the ten steps by which it had declined. A writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, after he had been sick and had recovered from his sickness. I said, In the middle of my days, I must depart. I am consigned to the gates of Sheol for the rest of my years. I said, I shall not see the Lord, the Lord in the land of the living. I shall look on man no more among the inhabitants of the world. My dwelling is plucked up and removed from me like a shepherd's tent. Like a weaver, I have rolled up my life. He cuts me off from the loom. From day to night, you bring me to an end. I calm myself until morning. Like a lion, he breaks all my bones. From day to night, you bring me to an end. Like a swallow or a crane, I chirp. I moan like a dove. My eyes are weary with looking upward. O Lord, I am oppressed. Be my pledge of safety. What shall I say? For he has spoken to me, and he himself has done it. I walk slowly all my years because of the bitterness of my soul. O Lord, by these things men live, and in all these is the life of my spirit. O restore to me health and make me live. Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness, but in love You have delivered my life from the pit of destruction, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. For Sheol does not thank you. Death does not praise you. Those who go down to the pit do not hope for your faithfulness. The living, the living, he thanks you as I do this day. The Father makes known to the children your faithfulness. The Lord will save me, and we will play my music on stringed instruments all the days of our lives at the house of the Lord. Now Isaiah had said, 
let them take a cake of figs and apply it to the boil that he may recover. Hezekiah also had said, What is the sign that I shall go up to the house of the Lord? At that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, the king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. And Hezekiah welcomed them gladly, and he showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say, and from where did they come to you? Hezekiah said, They have come to me from a far country, from Babylon. He said, What have they seen in your house? Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, there will be peace and security in my days. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, church. My name is Dusty Wyatt, and I'm one of the pastors here at Corndale Church. Welcome if you're visiting with us Uh, this morning. I have some bad news for us. And I also have some good news. What news would you like first? The bad news. That's actually, everybody always wants the bad news first, right? Before I get to both sets of news, um, let me just explain a little bit about Isaiah and where we find ourselves this morning. We find ourselves in Isaiah 38 and 39, which you just heard read. And I mentioned this last week, but if you didn't catch it last week, Isaiah 36, 37, 38, and 39 are different literary genre in Isaiah. Most of Isaiah is Hebrew poetry, but from 36 to 39, we find a narrative form of writing. And so Isaiah's telling us the story a little bit differently. And today we find ourselves in these two chapters. But before we get there, we have to understand that these two chapters were actually written, or these things happened in these two chapters before 36 and 37. So last week, what I mean by that is last week we saw God come down with an angel and wipe out 185 Assyrians, and we saw Hezekiah's faith under pressure, but 38 and 39 actually happened before that. Now, why would that happen? Why would Isaiah do that to us, just to confuse us a little bit? Probably not. Scholars and theologians and commentators all agree that this happens because in chapter 40, we see God sent his people into exile, and 39 sets that up beautifully. And so Isaiah moves this in this way on purpose. So one of the things that we have to understand about these four chapters is that 38 and 39 happened before 36 and 37. 
We know this particularly because of verse 6 in chapter 38. Look at it with me. It says this. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria and will defend this city. So that is one of the verses that, that just helps us understand that, well, actually, that just happened in the two chapters previous in my Bible, at least. So, so there you go. That's one literary fact of where we find ourselves in Isaiah. And then again, next week and in the weeks following, we find ourselves back into Hebrew poetry. Um, and, and Isaiah speaks to us in a different even tone in chapter 40. So here's what we're going to do today. I'm going to kind of give you the lay of the land. I'm going to kind of walk through uh, Isaiah 38 and 39, and then I'm going to come back and share with you the bad news first, because that's what you requested. Uh, And then I'm going to share with you the good news, and then we'll go uh, enjoy the humidity together, okay? So here's what's going on. Isaiah chapter 38, you can follow along if you want. If you don't want to, that's fine too. Here's the deal. Isaiah 38, Hezekiah is sick. Now, he doesn't have a cold. He's about to die. And so he's about to die. Isaiah comes to him and says, hey, you're going to die. Set your house in order and basically get ready to die. And so upon hearing this news from Isaiah, from the Lord, Hezekiah does that. But before he does that, actually, we don't have record that he does that. What he does is he turns his face to the Lord and he prays. So this is probably what you and I would do. You're, you're, you're maybe going to die, and so you pray, right? Like, it seems like a good thing to do. So Hezekiah prays. We're going to come back to what he prays specifically in a little bit. He weeps, and he weeps bitterly, Scripture says. Now, we know how bad he wept, because later on in chapter 38, he talks about how bad he thinks he wept about it. So we catch that later on uh, in chapter 38. But because he cries out to God, God grants him 15 years. This is a miracle in Scripture right here, chapter 38. Hezekiah is about to die. He prays to God, and so God says... He sends Isaiah back, and and he says, hey, tell him this. I'm going to turn back the sun uh, on his life. I'm going to give him 15 more years. So this is a miracle right here in chapter 38. And just like any normal person who comes face-to-face with death, the next thing he does is journal about it, because this is a big deal, right? So if you need a theological reason to journal, here it is, right here. Chapter 38, verse 9, verses 9 through 20 you have Hezekiah's journal entry or Hezekiah's psalm right before you. And in there, you, you, you learn a little bit about his perspective on coming face to face with death, how he wept, what the context of that weeping looked like. And in this writing, he talks about death and where he almost went. Now, I don't have a bunch of time this morning, and so I'm not going to share a bunch of, uh, from that writing that Hezekiah gives us, but I will camp out a little bit on verse 17. I think verse 17 of chapter 38 is key. Go with there with me. Go there with me, rather. Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness, but in love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. Now, I think this verse is key in his writing and in his journal entry because here you catch a little bit deeper perspective on Hezekiah's soul specifically. He's now no longer explaining in his psalm kind of how his weeping went. He's actually saying, In love, you delivered my life from the pit of destruction. I think verse 17 is key for all kinds of reasons. One of those reasons is because he's talking about his suffering. And friends, some of you have not really suffered at all, and some of you have suffered to great lengths, and some of you are suffering even today. And suffering, although dark and hard and oppressive, is meant to send the Christian to God. And that's why I think verse 17 is worth highlighting and noticing. 
verse 17 and scripture like verse 17 remind us that we await a better kingdom. A kingdom when suffering will be no longer. Suffering is to the Christian an enhanced, an enhanced view of God. Some of you are aware that in 2013, it was a year of suffering at my house. We found out in late 2012 that my wife was suffering from a blood clot in her head. And so that set up 2013 to just be a year of survival, really. Lots of doctor's appointments, lots of medicine, trips, you know, wherever, uh, for medicine reasons. It was a suffering kind of year. Now, my wife and I would both tell you that we are better because of it. And I think that's what Hezekiah is saying as well in 38 verse 17. He's saying, this is what almost happened. This didn't happen. God, you've spared me. God, you are gracious. You've even cast all my sin behind your back. When we suffer, we see our true character. When we suffer, we see our true faith. All kinds of stuff comes out of us and into us even when we are suffering. We learned a lot about our kids. We learned a lot about how suffering affects them. We learned a lot about who we think God is. And thankfully, God in his great grace has restored my wife. God in his great grace restores Hezekiah. And we see that here in scripture and um, and in just a few weeks, we're going to welcome another child into our home, which we believe, believe to be a sign from the Lord that he has healed and that he, on the back end of suffering, provides great provisions and blessings along the way. But verse 17 is key because it's here where Hezekiah is talking about God delivering him from illness. It's here in verse 17 where we realize that God has seen Hezekiah's sin and cast it behind his back. We're looking towards Christ in Isaiah, and Hezekiah here is centering his faith theologically on the God who has healed him amidst his pain and suffering. So then that brings us to chapter 39. Stick with me. That brings us to chapter 39, where the story gets very interesting. So here you have Hezekiah, who almost died, writes a journal entry. God heals him. It's amazing. Chapter 39, he becomes very self-focused, self-interested, self-consumed. It's all about Hezekiah. He's short-sighted, and in fact, he's seduced. Here's what happens. Miradak Baladan, the king of Babylon, apparently had caught wind that Hezekiah was sick to the point of death and was restored. So, Miradak Baladan sends a letter and a gift. He sends two things. He sends some envoys to greet Hezekiah. It's not very close in relation in proximity. These guys journey there, they take this letter, they take this gift, they give it to Hezekiah. Now, we don't know exactly what the letter said, because Scripture doesn't specifically tell us, but it doesn't take long, if you read the Scripture, to deduce that the letter had to be very enticing and the gift had to be pretty decent, because Hezekiah gets off the rail really quick. He's off the tracks. And you and I already know in chapter 37 that God defeats the Assyrians, and so here, It's kind of like what happens next is kind of like the lifestyles of the rich and famous. These guys show up, they seduce Hezekiah with this great gift and this great letter, and apparently the content of the letter had to be very enticing, because what Hezekiah does next is he brings these guys in. Somebody had taken notice, and it wasn't just anybody, it was the king of Babylon, and Babylon was kind of the tail that wagged the dog, as it were, when it came to power and influence. And so, What he does next is he invites him into his house. So, lifestyles of the rich and famous. I realize some of you are too young for that. 
And so the new version of that is MTV Cribs, right? And so what happens is Hezekiah says, hey, thanks for the gift. Thanks for the letter. Come on in. Here's my gun room. Here's my shoe room. Here's all the oils. Here's everything. Scripture tells us right here, um, it says uh, in chapter 39, verse 2, Hezekiah welcomes them gladly. He showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory. So this is where the videographer comes in, right? And they take stock of how awesome you are, right? If you're a star athlete or a Hollywood star, and we watch these things, right? In fact, it just showed up on my Facebook feed just a little bit ago that Michael Jordan's uh, mansion is for sale in Chicago. Uh, I may or may not have clicked on that. And looked at a couple photos. It's kind of stuck in the early 90s. So if you're into that, um, it's for sale. Uh, You'd have to move to Chicago. But this is exactly what Hezekiah does. He brings them in. He shows them everything. Everything. And, And Scripture tells us he showed them the best things. And then what happens is because of that, Hezekiah has an interface with Isaiah. Now the wise move would have been, hey, thanks for the letter. Thanks for the gift. You guys need to go. But what he does is he invites them in. Then Hezekiah and Isaiah have this dialogue because Hezekiah has become seduced. He's become enamored. And so Isaiah says, hey, who are those guys and what did you show them? Hezekiah has nothing to hide. So he says, well, I showed them everything. Isaiah says, okay, you and everything you showed them and your lineage and your sons are now going to Babylon. And not only are they going to Babylon, some of your sons are going to become eunuchs. Now, at that moment, if you're Hezekiah, A, you're a man, when you hear the word eunuch, you get concerned, right? You should be concerned for obvious reasons. I don't have to go into those reasons, right? The second reason you should be concerned is because your lifeline, your bloodline is now cut off, Isaiah says. Literally cut off. So they have this dialogue you think Hezekiah would be concerned, right? By now, you, by now you're kind of like, okay, Hezekiah, get it together. He's not. Look at verse nine, chapter thirty, verse eight, chapter thirty-nine. Then said Hezekiah to Isaiah, "The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. What? It's not good. For he thought there will be peace and security in my days. Self-centered, self-focused, short-sighted." And now it's all about Hezekiah. This guy is off the rails. So that's kind of the the flyover view of chapter 38, chapter 39. I said I have some bad news and some good news. Here's the bad news. Hezekiah's self-centeredness. The bad news that we see in chapters 38 and 39 is Hezekiah's self-centeredness. Now, if you were here last week or you caught the podcast You saw a Hezekiah who was full of faith, even in the midst of pressure, even in the midst of uh, people trying to come out and make peace treaties with him and try to get entice him in different ways. You see a man of faith, a man who withstands under pressure and is even consumed with the Lord of glory, the God of glory. Here you see in chapter 38, God has left the building, as it were, for Hezekiah. God has left the building. This is the Lord of glory that just healed this man. And now, just in one brief chapter, he is off the rails. He's short-sighted. He's self-consumed. Is that ever true for you? Does that ever happen? 
Are you ever more concerned for yourself than for others? Are you ever more focused on your accomplishments rather than the things of God? Are you ever seduced by the enemy to think more highly of yourself than you ought? Do you ever think, I deserve this because I've done this? Have you ever thought that way? Friends, I think one of the reasons that Jesus told us to love our neighbor as ourself is because he knows that we love ourselves a whole lot. And if we could just love our neighbor that much, we'd be advancing the gospel in this world. So the bad news is obvious. He's entitled. He's self-concerned. This is Hezekiah. We see it right away in his prayer. Now, I mentioned at the onset of what's happening at the beginning of chapter 38 is Hezekiah almost dies, and so he prays, which is the right thing to do. But look at the content of his prayer. I want you to look at this in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 38. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord. Okay, good decision. Verse 3. Instead, please, O Lord, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. He's posturing himself right now to say, hey, God, look what I've done. I have done what is good. I've done what is right. He actually believes, friends, he actually believes that he deserves to be healed. Now, you and I can look at the entire story because we have the entire story of Isaiah before us and we have 36 and 37, which we spent last week, and we know how this thing unfolds. And so you can look at this and say, Hezekiah, really? Like, this is about God. Why are you so self-concerned? I think we do the same thing as well, don't we? I don't know about you, but I struggle with entitlement. Do you ever feel like you're entitled to something? Here in the Midwest, we're surrounded by farms and farmers. I got farmers in my family. My father-in-law is one of the hardest working guys I've ever met in my life. And we're surrounded by these farms and we're surrounded by this culture. And so this, this farming culture here in the Midwest, it just kind of gets into our bloodstream and we work hard, therefore we're entitled to be rewarded. Or at least reward ourselves in some way. When we lived in California on the West Coast, in the Silicon Valley specifically, people worked hard there as well, but it was a little bit different than the Midwest. It wasn't a farming culture, obviously. It was a work-hard culture and, and probably burned too many minutes in a different way, not in a combine, but just at the office. But people also worked smart. And so the entitlement played out a little bit differently there. It played out in the sense of work hard, work smart, and then have a lot of fun at the beach. We're entitled to play. We're entitled to entertainment. But regardless, it's not really a Midwestern thing or a West Coast thing. This is a human problem. It's a human heart condition, entitlement, isn't it? We're entitled. Deep down, we're wickedly entitled people. Now, I want to give you this extended quote from Tim Keller. I can't say it any better than this. I think he sums it up great, the culture that we're currently swimming in. Listen to this extended quote from Pastor Tim Keller. Often the unstated assumption of many people is that it is God's job to create a world in which things benefit us. This idea has captured the hearts of most people, as sociologist Christian Smith points out. From his research, he concluded that most young American adults are practical deists, though few of them have ever heard the term. Smith means here that they see God as a being whose job it is to meet their needs. The implicit but strong cultural assumption of young adults is that God owes all but the most villainous people a comfortable life. 
This premise, however, inevitably leads to a bitter disillusionment. Life is nasty. Life is hard. Life is brutish. And life always feels too short. The presumption of spiritual entitlement dooms its bearers to a life of confusion when things in life inevitably go wrong. He keeps going. When we stand back to consider this premise that God owes us a good life, it is clearly unwarranted. If there really is an infinitely glorious God, why should the universe revolve around us rather than around Him? If we look at the biblical God's standards for our behavior, and here he mentions the Golden Rule, the Ten Commandments, and the Sermon on the Mount, and then consider humanity's record against the record against those norms, it may occur to us that the real riddle of evil is not what we thought. Perhaps the real puzzle is this. Why, in light of our behavior as a human race, does God allow us so much happiness? The teaching of creation and fall removes the self-pity that afflicts people with the deistic view of life. This last line is key. It strengthens the soul, preparing it to be unsurprised when life is hard. I can't say it any better than that. I think he's doing a fantastic job uh, right here in this work. This is his book on suffering, by the way, that I, that I pulled this from. He's doing a fantastic job describing us here today and the culture that we are currently in. How does entitlement have you handcuffed this morning? What did you come in here this morning with the disposition of feeling entitled to? What do you think you're entitled to? Entitlement, whether we're conscious of it or not, will always move us away from being concerned with the glory of God, and it'll move us towards self-consumption. It'll move us inward, not outward, and therefore it will hinder the good news of Jesus Christ going forward. Entitlement leaves us wanting and craving more. It's tricky, seductive, kind of like the envoys of Babylon. It it tricks us in the sense that we think it's going to be fulfilling, but it really ends up empty. Instead of feeling satisfied, we feel empty. Instead of feeling satisfied and joyful, we're left despairing when we give in to our disposition of entitlement. We see Hezekiah's self-centeredness right here at the onset of his prayer. It's, It's crafty how he prays to God. We see his pride manifested further when he shows off his home to the envoys later on in chapter 39, and we see it at full climax in verse 8 of chapter 39. Look at verse 39, verses 5 through 8 with me. Now, go to the end of our our text here, verses 5 through 8 of chapter 39. This is where Isaiah and Hezekiah are having this this dialogue. Look at verse 8 again. Then said Hezekiah to Isaiah, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought there will be peace and security in my days. Basically what he's saying here is the Lord's turned back and given me some some years. It's okay if, if my sons don't end up carrying on the family line. At least I have 15 more years. There's going to be peace and security in my days. And this is exactly what our peace and security do to us. They lie to us. The minute we're at peace and the minute we feel secure in our own endeavors, in our own doing, and in all of the things that we have accomplished is the minute we're short-sighted and the minute our faith is cut short. So, what happened? Hezekiah, you're a man of God, a man of great faith. He was healed, 
The Babylonian envoys show up, they get him derailed, and now he doesn't care about anybody but himself. Friends, isn't this how sin works in your life as well? It's subtle, right? It's creepy. It just kind of creeps in. It creeps in, it's disguising, and then when it has the chance, if not confronted, confessed, and repented of, it goes right for the jugular of God's people so that they turn on themselves. They become self-concerned instead of concerned with the glory of God and advancing of His kingdom. This is what it does for me, at least. So there's an obvious warning here for all of us in chapters 38 and 39. If you haven't paid attention, this is the part to pay attention to. Beware when sin shows up on your doorstep. Do not invite her in because she will move you quickly from true joy to selfishness, which will not deliver. Instead, it will only take you captive and later into exile. I'm going to repeat that because this is where we're headed into chapter 40. Beware when sin shows up on your doorstep. Do not invite her in because she will move you quickly, swiftly, from true joy to selfishness, which will not deliver you. Instead, it will only take you captive into exile. This is the clear message of Isaiah 38 and 39 to us this morning. And we see this fold out into chapter 40s and following as we will see in the weeks to come. And I think we see it play out this way existentially for us as well, don't we? Experientially, when we come to grips with our sin and we become seduced by our sin, it always delivers and comes up short. It's never quite satisfying. It's never quite fulfilling. So, the bad news, Hezekiah's self-centeredness. Bad news should always be followed up with good news, don't you think? Here's the good news, God's faithfulness. If the bad news is Hezekiah's self-centeredness, the good news is God's faithfulness. And this is the good news for all of us. It's not just for Hezekiah this morning, friends. God is faithful to Hezekiah and to his people in spite of his selfishness. Do you see that? Hezekiah takes his prayer to God with a sense of self-concern. He thinks he deserves to be healed, and God still hears him, and God still answers him. Isaiah chapter 38, verses 2 through 6. He carries out the prayer, verse 4. Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, and it said this. Go and say to Hezekiah, Isaiah takes this message back. Thus the Lord, the God of David your father, that's, that's important right there. I have heard your prayer, I have seen your tears. Friends, this should encourage you right here. God is a God who sees. Hezekiah doesn't have to clean himself up. He doesn't have to take care of his self-centeredness at first. He takes the core of who he is, the core of his selfishness, the core of being self-centered in prayer to God, and God says, I hear it and I see it. This should encourage you in prayer. If, If you struggle with prayer, if you struggle with entering into prayer, if you struggle with being in prayer and thinking that you are unclean and you are unworthy, To be before God. You are, and so is Hezekiah. Hezekiah doesn't clean himself up to come to God. He brings everything that he already is, filthy in his heart, before the throne of grace. And he brings it, and God hears it, and God sees it. If Hezekiah doesn't clean himself up before he comes and enters into prayer, then neither should we. For those of you who wonder if God is even really out there, look at verse 5. Again. I've seen your tears. Behold, I'll add 15 years to your life. God can see what you feel, says verse 5. 
Now, keep going with me. Don't miss verse 6. I will deliver you, and so he's talking to Hezekiah here, I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria and will defend this city. Now, this is the good news. This is the more specific good news for you and I, because now he's not talking about Hezekiah anymore. He's talking about us. He's talking about the people of God here. He's talking about the city of Jerusalem. God is gathering a people unto himself, and he will not go back on that promise. He mentions to Hezekiah, I have a Davidic covenant to fulfill. I'm a man of my word. I'm going to deliver you and this city. You're going to go into exile for a little bit, but I'm going to deliver you. So, more good news. God does not answer Hezekiah because of his self-centeredness. He answers Hezekiah on behalf of his people in spite of his self-centeredness. God is gathering a people unto himself and he will not go back on that promise. And that is why we're here today and that is the good news for us this morning. So, let's take stock of where we're at now. Perhaps you've been on the fence with Christianity. Perhaps you've just been on the fence with spirituality in in general and fall is coming and so you're thinking about turning over a new leaf. Hear the good news from Isaiah 38 and 39, especially verse 17. God stands ready to save you from the pit of destruction. That is key. That is good news. God stands ready to save you and deliver you from the pit of destruction, and he wants to cast all of your filthy sin, your wretched self-centeredness behind him through the blood of Jesus. Yes, praise God. Brothers and sisters in Christ this morning, you should be encouraged and take heart with chapters 38 and 39. Because God is faithful when you are sideswiped by your sin. When you have been seduced by Lady Babylon, you're to get up, dust yourself off, and thank God for His faithfulness extended towards you. Our self-centeredness must be seen through the lens of God's faithfulness extended towards us. We must view the bad news through the good news. Does that make sense? That's key. You got to look at God's faithfulness and look at all of your sin out here through that lens. God is faithful in spite of your sin. God is faithful in in spite of your self-centeredness. You become short-sighted, it's okay. God is faithful and he'll take that faith and he will build it up and he will strengthen it. We saw that later in chapters 36 and 37. God is faithful in spite of us. Man, is anybody here? Thank you. Oh, I want, the, I want us to get this, church. If we don't get this, we're bogged down by our sin. We're handcuffed with entitlement. And then we lead despairing lives. Now, kind of moping around. I got Jesus, but... No, God is faithful to us, in spite of us. Oh, this is good news. We have much to celebrate this morning. God says, Hezekiah, I'll take your short-sighted prayer. I'm going to turn it back. I'm going to gather a people unto myself, and you're not going to stop it. You're going to go into exile for a little bit. It's going to be hard. Your sons are going to be cut off. It's going to be fine. I am gathering a people unto myself. That's why we're here this morning. We're not here for religious reasons. We're here because God has brought us here. We're here because God has gathered us unto himself. And we have much to celebrate this morning. And so we look to Christ. Isaiah's looking to Christ here. 
Christ is the author and the perfecter of any, any sort of faith that you have. Whether full of faith this morning, whether short-sighted, whether selfish, whether, regardless, Christ is the author of that faith. He's the perfecter of that faith. He is faithful to us. He has a covenantal love towards us, which brings us rest and assurance and renewal. And that's why we're here. We're here to be renewed. We're here to look at each other, encourage each other, take communion together, and to remind ourselves of the renewal that we need in Christ alone. Let me pray for us. Let me pray for you. Let me pray for me. I pray for all of us in a pastoral way as we prepare to take communion. And let's pray towards this end. Let's get this message from Isaiah this morning. Heavenly Father, we, we're grateful for your word. We're thankful for Isaiah 38. We're thankful for Isaiah 39. Hezekiah's short-sighted self-centeredness actually encourages us this morning because we're just like that. So God, we're more grateful though for your faithfulness extended. We're thankful that You will deliver, Hezekiah, you say. You will deliver your city, your people, and you will do the work. And God, that brings us a great deal of peace and security now. God, we admit, we confess this morning that we are deeply entitled people. We're wickedly entitled. We're wickedly self-centered. We're so short-sighted. If Hezekiah is short-sighted, we're short-sighted. So God, we need your forgiveness there. We need your grace there. And so we prepare our hearts now even to come to communion, to be renewed, to find rest because of your love extended towards us in Christ Jesus alone. God, we want to be a church marked by your faithfulness. We want to be a church and we want to be a people that subscribes to your faithfulness, not because it's good theology, but because we actually bank our lives on it. We bank our lives on your faithfulness extended towards us, not our fickle faithfulness extended towards you. Jesus, thank you for saving us. Thank you for gathering us, even in our selfishness. Thank you for hearing our prayers, even when they're selfish. Even when we bring our resume, as filthy rags as it is, thanks for hearing us. Thanks for seeing us. Thanks for casting our sin behind your back on our behalf. And God, now as we turn to the communion table, thanks for pouring out that sin and that wrath and that judgment on your son, Jesus Christ, who paid the ransom for it. Amen.